Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Well, welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. We just concluded our uh, mini-series, if you will, on hobbies, and JP and I are, are so excited to announce that we have so many great listeners out there, and thank you for your feedback and supporting the podcast, right, JP? We've, we have a great audience out there. Absolutely. I mean, we, we hear from people regularly with comments or questions, and most importantly, and most appreciated, ideas for future episodes. We, we love hearing from all of you listening and we love when you let us know what you want to hear in the future. Yeah, and one of the reasons we started this podcast is because the the breadth and depth of topics is just immense. And the material is so rich, we can go on and on and on. And we were talking about how, uh, JP and I were talking about how, you know, we just spend a lot of time talking about hobbies. And before that, a lot of time about the match. And we don't want to come across as unserious because neurosurgery is a serious field. Don't you think, JP? Yeah, I mean, it, it's so common these days, and we always used to joke that uh, neurosurgeons and neurosurgery residents in particular these days, we all try to act like we're tough guys and like we're cool. But at the end of the day, if you scratch a neurosurgeon, you're going to find a nerd. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so, you know, we, we want to start delving into some other areas. And, um, you know, we we have an upcoming mini-series on neurosurgery families, but we wanted to get back into the, the heart and science and core of what we do as neurosurgeons seeing patients in an operating room. So we are going to be launching next a, uh, if you will, a mini series that's focused on the topic of cognition. Now, I know that sounds like a, it sounds like it might be a weird topic, but think about how most neurosurgeons went into neurosurgery because they love the brain. And I'm I'm a spine surgeon, but, you know, that's why I got started in neurosurgery. And, And the brain is, is a fascinating organ. Uh, my buddy, Charles Liu used to say, well, you know, a pig heart and a human heart, it's pretty much the same thing. But a pig brain and human brain is totally different, right? So the, the concept of the brain, or if you will, the mind, uh, and consciousness or cognition is really central to what we're really trying to affect as brain surgeons, don't you think, JP? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as you say, these organs don't differ significantly in their basic functionality between species or even between humans. But when you think about Um, the same physical processes happening in my head, happening in your head, happening in a baby's head, um, happening in in all these different brains around the world with such a different product, both experientially for the individual experiencing that brain function, however that works, which is not well understood, but also in terms of the uh, behavioral product and what our cognitive processes and mental processes exert on our surroundings and the people around us by manipulation of our bodies and our environments. Exactly. And so that connection sometimes gets lost because neurosurgery's history has been limited by the technology of the day, right? So if you go back to the classic report of Phineas Gage or the work of Wilder Penfield, all these concepts of the brain um, were, were so limited. But right before the pandemic, JP, do you remember all those viral videos of the awake surgeries where people were having a tumor taken out and they were playing the violin or they were singing a song or or reciting poetry? Do you remember all that? It was crazy on Facebook, right? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, as we all know, awake surgeries were in vogue some decades ago for tumors before monitoring and imaging was as good as it is now. But uh, there's been a resurgence lately, particularly for people that have these specific talents or skills, oftentimes uh, something that they do for a living, like a musician or something like that. Um, and also, as in your own work, doing awake surgery, even for spine, when you have patients that are perhaps clinically at higher risk for general anesthesia, it's incredible to think that you can operate on the organ that generates consciousness without having to wink the light of consciousness out. Exactly, exactly. And when we think about those awake surgeries, you know, essentially they've been used as a neuromonitoring um modality, if you will, to sort of assist or aid in better surgeries without hurting a patient. But we know that cognition goes way beyond that, right? And most of those folks doing those, those awake surgeries are, if you will, neuro-oncologists or tumor surgeons. I think most of the time on this mini-series, we're going to be focused more in the realm of functional neurosurgery. And, and JP, maybe for some of the less initiated in our audience, maybe we can talk about what functional neurosurgery really is or what it could be or what it has been, right? Yeah. I mean, it, if you ask me, as I've said before, and I've joked with you, uh, spine surgery falls under the umbrella of functional neurosurgery. Um, but at least as we generally talk about it, um, functional neurosurgery, I think at least is, is just about the truest brain surgery there is. So many fields within neurosurgery, be it vascular, be it tumor, they don't operate on the brain per se. They operate near the brain, around the brain, on diseased brain, uh, on tumors invading the brain. But within functional neurosurgery, um, neurosurgeons of this specialty operate directly on neural tissue to manipulate its function, as the name states, in order to affect mental states or processes generated by the neural tissue, the neural circuits uh, directly being manipulated. Typically things like epilepsy, which is a dysfunction of neural tissue, movement disorders, and increasingly um, there are investigated functional procedures to influence mood or psychiatric state. Now, JP, when, before I went to medical school and, and, you know, prior to, of course, being a neurosurgery resident, my emphasis and my passion as a college student and even before that was really in, in infectious disease and public health. I, I spent time studying for, uh, epidemiology for an MPH at UCLA. My major at Stanford was microbiology and immunology. I worked summers at the CDC, and I really thought that that was going to be my future. And so when we did the COVID uh, pandemic miniseries, I really, I really, I don't want to say I enjoyed it because it was a horrible time, but I really was fascinated with that. And of course, it studied coronavirus in college, right? And so right. I, I, I really enjoyed that. But now we're getting into a realm where I think this is really some of your passion, right? And, and tell us about your time when you were in college in Florida State and, and what you were really interested in researching when you were in college. Sure. Um, you know, I, I laugh about this frequently, but when I arrived to college, my first major was actually classics. I had studied Latin in high school and I thought I would continue on with that. Um, but eventually, after doing some normal freshman exploration, I wound up in the psychology department, and that ended up being my major at graduation. Uh, but particularly, I was interested and focused in neuroscience. There wasn't a dedicated major for neuroscience at Florida State at the time. It was kind of a split department between biology and psychology. Um, but in so doing and in so pursuing the physical neuroscience and developing that interest, 
a lot of my general coursework was involved with various domains in psychology, uh, social psychology, cognitive and processing psychology included. And some of the labs I ended up working in were physical neuroscience labs, um, animal labs. I worked with zebra finches, uh, a bird lab, and then also in a rodent lab, uh, mice and rats. And the department at Florida State, uh, which became very interesting for me, was primarily focused on sensory systems. Um, and so while you know the process of sensation and perception may fall outside the field of this miniseries on cognition, more interestingly, the means by which sensation and perception can be tested in animal models uh, was very fascinating to me and still to this day affects the way I assess patients uh, and interact with them and think about them on physical exam and interview. Uh, particularly the rodent lab I worked in was for a very prominent behaviorist um, and the discipline and perspective of animal behavior study and behaviorism in psychological research um, I think holds great promise not only to assess the mental state of animals that can't talk to you, but really informed the way I still think about human cognitive function and human assessment today. Well, we as neurosurgeons see humans that can't talk to you, right? Whether because of their age or disability or uh, impact to their brain, right? So that's quite relevant. Tell, tell me an example, give me an example, or give an example to our listeners about how a research project maybe you did at that stage translates into something that might impact you as a neurosurgeon today? Like what were you actually doing in terms of animal experimentation? Sure. So the main experiment I worked on for a long time was in establishing a taste receptor for umami, that uh, savory sensation, uh, the newest taste sense that had been discovered and eventually validated in the past few decades. Oh, so, um, so just to, for our readers or listeners, the uh, the senses of sweet, bitter, salty, uh, I can't remember, there's four sour. of them, right? Sweet, sorry? Sour. Right, sweet, bitter, sour, uh, and uh, <laughs> salty, and then yeah. savory now, right? So that's the thing in, in the Japanese flavoring, right? So tell us about savoriness or umami, if you will. Yeah, so th th these receptors would fire in response to... Uh, basic protein structures, amino acids. And that's why in a lot of Asian cuisine, uh, monosodium glutamate, MSG, that glutamate, it's a, it's a salt of an amino acid. And that's why it triggers that umami sensation when it hits the tongue. And so there were various subclasses of glutamate receptors that biochemists had identified as likely candidates to be the functional receptor for the umami taste. But our question was, okay, well, we know that glutamate makes this receptor fire, but is that really the functional receptor for this taste? And so we were assessing this in rodents who had been particularly bred. One, one batch of uh, this experiment was with mice. One batch of mice were just normal, had no manipulation to their taste architecture. And another batch were bred uh, to selectively have a genetic knockout for that receptor. So the receptor under investigation was not present in their tongues. And then to ask them the question, can you taste this MSG? Well, obviously the mice can't talk to you. So what you can do is put them in a modified version of what's called a Skinner box. Uh, B.F. Skinner is often called the father of behaviorism. He was a psychologist in the mid 20th century in America. And he developed a lot of the principles of behaviorism that we still talk about and implement today in this kind of research. Um, essentially, he pioneered what was what we call operant conditioning. Classical conditioning is where a stimulus, such as hearing a sound or seeing a color, 
paired with some action in the environment or influence upon you, um, not something that you do, but something that you observe over time, that stimulus becomes associated with its effect. So classically, uh, the psychologist Pavlov would ring a bell before feeding dogs. He would ring the bell, then give them food, ring the bell, give them food. And eventually he noticed that just at the sound of the bell, the dogs would salivate because they associated the ringing bell with the delivery of food. That's what you would call classical conditioning. Operant conditioning takes this to a next step where you either encourage or discourage a behavior because the associated environmental change to me taking an action is either a reward or punishment. And rewards would make me more likely to do the behavior, as is logical, and punishment would make me less likely because I learn that doing X produces either a bad or a good mental state for myself. That's a roundabout way of saying that with these mice, um, essentially we would put them in a box and they would walk up and lick a water spout and that water would either have MSG in it or no MSG. And then in a separate experiment, various concentrations of MSG to see if there was a threshold for detection. And then we would train them that if they could taste the MSG, they would walk over to a spout on the left and lick that. And if they did not taste it, they would walk over to a spout on the right and lick that. These mice were, uh, they had water withheld. So they had, they were very thirsty. That was their encouragement to get it right. And based on if we delivered MSG in the water or just delivered them plain water, if they went to the appropriate side and got it correct, so went to the left if there was MSG or went to the right if there wasn't and they were correct, they would be delivered water as a reward. And so over time, the, the mice should learn that if I taste this taste, I go to the left. If I don't, I go to the right. And they would be encouraged by the relief of their thirst to perform appropriately. And that's how we could ask them the question, can you taste this MSG? And eventually determine if the receptor that was missing in the knockout mice was in fact responsible for the detection of the umami flavor because those mice would get the question wrong 50% of the time, just like chance, it's a coin flip. And the mice who had this receptor intact should get it right much more frequently. And it's a roundabout way to get there, but if you think about this behavioral perspective in terms of neurosurgery, you can wonder about when you ask someone to move a limb, if uh, the limb doesn't move at full strength, you can wonder, is this volitional? Is this psychiatric or psychological? Is it true neurologic weakness? Is it mechanical, intrinsic to the limb itself? But fundamentally, what you focus on is the behavioral output of the patient, not what they tell you subjectively, my leg hurts, oh, I can't move my leg. You focus on what physically happens, what behavior they exhibit, not just the self-report of their subjective mental state. Right. So now our listeners are getting a feel of how wonky this kind of uh, study is going to be and, oh, how yeah. functional and how functional guys think, right? So I'm very excited because we're going to have an opportunity to speak to many uh, world-renowned functional neurosurgeons, um, some neuropsychologists, and uh, other experts in this kind of field. And when we talk about cognition, there's so many aspects to it, right? Because it's such a broad field. One might think about it instead for the layperson as the concept of the brain versus the mind, right? So how do we how do we get under that curtain and start to understand how the human brain works, how it's affected by disease, and how surgeons might intervene to affect change for the betterment of, of the patient? And so we've got some really amazing um, recordings for you to listen to. I think that this is maybe the most exciting area of neurosurgery. I think most would agree that 
in 50 years, uh, we're going we're gonna to be looking back, thinking about most of what we do today as being fairly barbaric. But maybe you would look at what's done in functional neurosurgery today as the, as the, um, the beginning, the, the embryonic form of what's going to be the true form of neurosurgery uh, in, in 50 years. Don't you agree, JP? Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think many people would disagree with the notion that the brain and the nervous system remain the least understood organ in not just the human body, but really animal biology. Um, we know physically how nervous tissue works. One cell influences another cell to either fire a signal to the next cell or not. And at the end of the day, that's what nervous tissue does. One nerve tells another nerve to turn on or turn off. But the vast array of functional outcomes that can be achieved simply by the arrangement of these cell circuits, be it closing a hand, be it smiling, be it writing a symphony, be it making your partner cry, the vast, vast depth of the mental states that can be produced um, is mind-boggling. And that leap is still poorly understood, if at all, that how we get from one cell telling another fire to a mental state of pleasure or pain, the generation of consciousness. And so I think as in the coming decades, the basic scientists and the neurobiologists, hopefully and almost certainly, if you're optimistic, begin to further understand the basic science of nervous tissue we, the clinical practitioners who apply that information um, in treating patients, will have more and more tools at our disposal, not only to cure disease, but perhaps even to augment the normal function of the human nervous system. Yeah, so the timing is appropriate because just this past week, most of you know that Elon Musk announced that Neuralink had successfully implanted and used a, um, uh, a, if you will, a neural electrode system in a pig and that they were working with primates. And of course, Elon's tweet or, uh, or one-liner was about maybe, you know, these monkeys are going to play Pong as a video game uh, in the future. And so you can see that this is really a, a fascinating arena. And we can talk about the ethics of it because as you alluded to, JP, this issue of neural augmentation and, uh, if you will, um, the singularity, right? The, the, not the black hole singularity, but the AI singularity that we all know is likely to approach us um, and, and maybe the role of functional neurosurgeons in that. But we'll cover aspects of sensory experiences, whether they be uh, visual or um, pain-related, for example, and motor experiences in terms of how we affect motor function with surgeries, emotion uh, and all of those aspects of, of, of sort of the appreciation, the consciousness of the brain um, of these elements. So I'm very excited about this. But unfortunately, I think we are just going to be scratching the surface. I mean, what we're going to talk about over the next two months or so is going to be just a very, very tiny, tiny little appetizer of what actually goes on in these amazing departments of neurosurgery. Absolutely. Um, I hope that for everyone who follows along and, and comes through this journey with us in the coming weeks, uh, we'll, we'll use this as a springboard and we'll use this as a touchstone to point you for further research. As you say, this is going to be the tip of a very vast and deep iceberg um, that anyone with the slightest interest in the human mind or the human brain and their different functions uh, can use this as a signpost for areas of further research um, areas of further reading, 
and uh, really an indicator of where the field's going to go in the next 50 years, well within our lifetime and our career. Um, human cognition really is the ceiling that can limit further advances in a variety of fields. And if some intrepid researcher in the coming years does find a way to expand our cognitive capacity, um, think about the downstream effects that that will have in every other field of human life. So we'll be exploring these ideas and more in the coming weeks with our mini-series on neurosurgery and cognition. Stay tuned. Mm -hmm.